Hello, you're listening to episode two of the Poet in the City podcast. Yes, in case you hadn't noticed, we're just weeks away from a general election, and in this edition we're talking poetry and politics. I'm Alia Kassam, and coming up in the programme, we'll be talking to poets from the north and the south of the country to find out how they take on the election issues of our time with Holly McNish and Helen Mort. If you're tired of soundbites and spin, then fear not. We'll be taking inspiration from the ancient Athenians to hear how they did their politics and championed democracy with Professor of Classics at King's College London, Edith Hall. And finally, we'll be asking what role poetry and the arts have to play when it comes to creating social change. But to start the programme, you might be wondering why we would use poetry as a way to look at the general election at all. Poetry rarely features in the news or is quoted by politicians, and they may not seem to have much to do with each other. But if you listen to episode one, you'll know that I spoke to the BBC producer, Tim D. Tim produces Radio 4's Poetry Please. It's the world's longest-running poetry request programme, and when we met, he told me about the current most requested poem and how it tells us something very interesting about ourselves as a nation. Here's Tim. The most requested poem is Stopping by Woods by Robert Frost. Something has happened to the poetic consciousness of the nation to move from Kipling's If to Robert Frost's wonderful poem of sort of indetermination and vagueness. That's fascinating in itself that now just a poem like that, an American poem about a horse and a rider stopping in the middle of a snowy wood in the wintertime has become the kind of poetic heartbeat of the country in a way, compared, say, to Kipling's If, which was occupying the same position a decade ago. It's fascinating in the era of the rise of UKIP that we're interested in not a jingoistic poem, that we're interested in a poem that comes from somewhere else and that is quiet and moody and introspective, and we think of that as somehow being close to our national character, at least, if the most requested poems suggest that. So... Although Maury polls and statistics and swingometers are all well and good, maybe poetry is another kind of barometer and gives us a different way of gauging what matters and what people really think and feel. So to start the programme, here's the nation's favourite poem, read by the actress, Gabby Meadows. Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening by Robert Frost Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near, between the woods and frozen lake, the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. The woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep, and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. When it comes to visions of Britain today and the election issues of our times, then we bring you our very own poetry dispatches from two of Britain's brightest contemporary poets, Holly McNish and Helen Mort. Each of them take up politics in unique and interesting ways. Holly McNish is a UK poet and spoken word artist. She's released three poetry albums and a book of poetry. And for me, Holly's poetry takes politics and policy issues head on. 
Poems like Mathematics in Embarrassed, which takes up the politics of breastfeeding, have been seen by millions of people online. She's based in Cambridge, and when we met, she told me how she got into politics and started off by reading this direct address to our politicians in Westminster. If you've never needed public transport, if you've never relied on the NHS, if you've never sat down in a state school, if you've never had to pay out rent, if you've never done a low-paid job, smiled through gritted teeth in sobs, if you've never had to cook or mop, budget for a weekly shop, I do not understand how your CV can come out top to lead decisions on curriculum, housing, health, transport or jobs. But I didn't vote when I turned 18, I don't think, or I can't really remember, I just wasn't interested... I said something which I hear loads of people saying is that it doesn't really affect me or it's not really me or it's not really my thing. And then um, got shouted at, basically, <laughs> by this person. And she was like, of course it's your thing. And I think that's, as a young person and especially as a young female, I just felt it wasn't very relevant. And now the more that I sort of look at things, I'm like, they decide everything. One of the most contested policy areas at the moment is immigration, and we're often accused as a country of not being able to have a proper discussion on the subject. But poets have been talking about it for ages, and it's an area that Holly McNish takes up in many of her poems. Poets like her aren't just engaging with the public and in these sorts of debates, but they're actually starting them. This is the opening section to Holly's poem, Foreign. I find it strange when people complain about foreign people in the UK so much and ignore all the foreign things that we use. I find it strange the way we treat foreign people and families so differently than the way we treat foreign money or products or food. Let foreign ships sail to our shores filled with things we can take, but turn them away if the foreign people who make them want to come too. I find it strange we're okay with chewing on foreign food. Chinese carry-out bags and Indian too, kebabs and pizzerias and foreign tropical fruit juice. We're okay with eating foreign sugar cane, sugary treats, munching on foreign cocoa bean, chocolatey sweets, complaining between every bite about the foreign folk down our street. We're okay with wearing foreign clothes, stuff we love to buy cheap because foreign wages are so low, our whole household comes from Shanghai and Tokyo and I know that we're okay with driving foreign cars so fast, filling up our buses with foreign petrol piped from their parts, foreign heating gas extracted by digging up their plants, watching foreign TVs as we sit on our starts, complaining to each other about the foreigners in our kids' class. So I was looking on YouTube and a lot of the work is overtly political and you're kind of, in a way you're sort of broadcasting yourself, they're like you're poetry political I mean, no, <laughs> yeah, I so, but in a way I mean, they're quite yeah, I'm yeah. not saying you've got the same you're doing it exactly the same way as politicians do but you've yeah. got your own views and they're out there a lot of your videos have gone viral and, and they seem to be picked up by a lot of people so actually has that form of broadcasting been helpful to you do you think actually poetry's got a big voice yeah I think it has well it's getting a bigger voice it seems with social media it's not like you only hear voices that have been chosen by the TV stations or the radio stations to be heard which is how it used to be really the only thing I, I don't know if the people that share the videos are people that already agree with them. I think I read somewhere that you sometimes you've gone and you've posted your videos sort of like for the... Yeah, in the, like the wrong places. On <laughs> yeah. purpose, you've, you've yeah. actually gone to find... Yeah, people. because otherwise what's the point? It's the same like, oh, I don't know, preaching to the choir people say, don't they? Is that what you did, like a, a like yeah. page three poem and you put it on the song's website? Yeah, yeah. But in the poem called Mathematics, I posted that in a lot of anti immigration forums but it's just nice to reach people that maybe don't share the same opinion as you so you're not preaching just no well I don't I don't think so maybe it looks that way but I wrote the poems just for myself at first and then I've been asked to put them up 
Like mathematics, I wrote because I had a conversation with someone that was saying, is it not his human right that a white person could serve him in the local shop? And I was studying the economics of immigration at the time and it was just like, how are these worlds so separated? When I was studying, there were loads of stuff that we read sort of a research paper and then we'd read how newspapers had taken that research paper and spun it. Why don't we like look at what is around us rather than always believing what's written in the papers? The idea of looking around us and taking notice is, I think, key to what poetry and poets do. And while politicians and the media might focus on the things they deem relevant or newsworthy, they often exclude other areas that matter to people and that impact their lives. Issues affecting women, for example, may go unnoticed or not even be seen to be political at all. But poets like Holly put the spotlight on those issues that don't always get headlines. Pregnancy and motherhood and feeding, they're so political and they need to be thought of like that. The breastfeeding poem, it's a really political issue. You know, when I was in hospital, I got given a pack with, like, formula milk vouchers in it. And if you say anything about breastfeeding, then it seems like you're attacking people that don't breastfeed or not. But since I've been doing loads of conferences on it, there are so many issues around formula milk, like being given out free in conflict zones where women are possibly having to flee for their lives with a baby and obviously will not be able to reach a shop with formula milk. But it's never seen as a political issue, it's seen as a woman's issue. Or women's issues aren't seen as political issues. And I guess maybe that's again because there's no representation really. It's like there's the number of female MPs and... As a woman in poetry and the work that you do, have you found that difficult? I'm not saying it's the same as working in politics, but have you had that kind of discrimination? With poems that I've put up on immigration, I've put quite a lot of poems up about touching and sort of sex and stuff like that as well. And there's been quite a few comments like, I don't mind your poems about relationships, but like stick to what you know. Like assuming that I know about relationships, but I don't know about immigration. It's just my ideas about it. But I wouldn't like I wouldn't put up a poem on YouTube if I didn't feel quite strongly that I'd read enough and looked enough into it. I wouldn't. I've got loads of poems like that, but they are still in books and folders waiting for me to go through with a fine-tooth comb and actually see if there's any basis for the thoughts I've got. This is Holly, reading her poem, Hollow. We started quite similar, two young girls knocked up, boyfriends excited and mum and dad's chuffed. Our friends buzzing by to put hands on our bumps, both belly and boobs getting shockingly stumped. We started quite similar, both bellies slow rising. Two plum ripe tomatoes grow stretch marks in lines. While we're both walking home after work in the office, we try not to waddle as passers-by's eyes are on us. We started quite similar, both woken at dawn to two kicks in the pelvis, both giggle and yawn. Now she lies at the side of the road simply screaming, I'm home, she just groans, both our feet up, hers bleeding. Cause there's no march going on in my city, you see. No war, so that war crime's not used against me. I might walk the street hunchback, but baby lies safely, and whilst mine may be chocolate, it's revenge that she's craving. So when you ask what I'm thinking, is it boots, cots, or mittens, truth is, I'm just thankful it's here that I'm living. Cause as my stomach bulges like a water balloon, her hollowed-out body lies like carcass consumed in the wrong time, the wrong street, the wrong country or place, on the wrong side, the wrong tribe, the wrong party or race. Both trying not to waddle as passers-by's eyes or watch, but whilst mine pass me by, her circle and stop. Radio announcements as troops told to target mothers, children, unborn Moses baskets. With knives and machetes like cutting through ham, they slice round her belly to remove what they can. We started quite similar, two young girls knocked up. My boyfriend excited, hers hung himself up. My mum and dad chuffed, her mum and dad mourning, and as flies buzz her belly, my friend's hands still swarming. 
because there's no war going on in my city, you see. No radio orders to ethnically cleanse me. So when you ask what I'm thinking with a baby inside me, my hands clasp the skin tight and my mind runs in hiding. So when you ask what I'm thinking, is it cots, toys or clothes, I just smile and nod because truth is, I don't know. So when you ask what I'm thinking every time that it kicks, ask what I think when its heart beats so quick, the thing I think most, and it might sound quite sick, is how on earth would you cope if they cut out your kid? But there's no war going on in my city, you see, so that war crime's not used as a weapon against me. No knife waiting bluntly to cut through my womb as her body lies clutching a hollowed-out tomb. The thing I think most, and it's making me sick, is how on earth could I cope if they cut out this kid? If Holly McNish talks directly about politics and policy issues, then Helen Mook dramatises the effects of those policies. Born in Sheffield and currently working as a creative writing fellow at the University of Leeds, Helen's first collection, Division Street, was shortlisted for both the T.S. Eliot Prize and the Costa Prize, and it contains political poetry that takes a show rather than tell approach. We often hear politicians accuse each other of coming up with a catchy policy on the back of a fag packet. And if our politicians are guilty of coming up with quick-fix policies to win votes, then Helen's poetry takes the long view, showing the legacy of policies and politics on individual lived lives and on communities. If policies can sometimes seem to be faceless, then their reality is realised and humanised in much of her poetry. Division Street contains the long poem Scab, which deals directly with the politics of the 1980s and the miners' strike. And when we met, I asked her what made her write it. At the heart of the book for me is a long poem called Scab, which jump cuts a bit like a film between scenes from the clash between picketing miners and police at Orgreave in 1984 and scenes that describe Jeremy Deller's brilliant film The Battle of Orgreave which was in the early 2000s where Della went back to Orgreave and decided to recreate that original clash between striking miners and police with people who had been involved with the original battle, so feelings running very, very high. And the reason I got interested in this idea and why Jeremy Della's piece about Orgreave is central to the poem is that I wanted to show... As somebody who was born in the 80s myself and only grew up in the aftermath of pit closure and the devastating effects of that, I wanted to show that it's something that's important to people of my generation, especially if they've got a connection with a landscape that used to be a mining area, that violence and political violence is something that gets reenacted over and over. It's something that we can't help repeating in our own memories, in our communities. Once you introduce that kind of violence to any sort of landscape or place, it gets acted out over and over again in different ways and it's very difficult for people to let go of it, I think. So I wanted to reflect that in some way in a, in a piece of art and to write a bit about the area that I'm familiar with in, in terms of how important things like Orgreave have been to our cultural memory, I guess, or collective memory or sense of community. In 2014, Helen gave a reading of the poem to a packed audience at London's Royal Festival Hall. This is the first part of the poem. Scab. A stone is lobbed in 84, hangs like a star over Orgreave. Welcome to Sheffield, borderland, our town of miracles. The wine turn into water in the pubs, the taxman ransacking the church. Plenty of room at every inn, and watch, 
A car flares into a burning bush. A stone like a star of all grief. A spat out word that can't be taken back. They follow it. The bobbies from ten counties. Pickets up from Markham, down from Cortonwood. The cavalry, the 58 Alsatian dogs. They find the houses cold as barns. The whole town gathered in the street. The wise men, shepherds, beasts. Star of all grieve, star of light, star of fucking royal shite. Westward leading, kids want feeding, guide us to your perfect light. One brings a half brick, one brings a shield, one brings a truncheon, one a chain. Bearing gifts we've travelled so far, God or fuck knows who we are. A man fetal beside the railway tracks, anointment of blood. Poetry specialises in the close-up and the detail and the perhaps the individual perspective. I think that's that's where it can serve as a really good counterbalance to things in the arena of politics. It's kind of the opposite of broad policy. It's about small details and individual perspectives and that's what metaphor does. It, it kind of helps you to understand the links between all these things and how something is like something else and how actually the world is an incredibly interconnected place, more interconnected than we'd ever realise. I think... The problem is if you're in politics, a lot of the time you're, you're trying to deal with things in isolation. You, you have to, to address whatever problem it is you're trying to address. And ultimately, it's a real dilemma because it's impossible to do that because everything is dependent and contingent on everything else. And poetry is a bit of a, a map of that in some ways. It's a map of interconnections. And poets are always saying to us, haven't you ever noticed how this thing is a little bit like this thing or how how this maps onto this? So I think it's an important check and balance in that way to politics. I love that idea of poetry as the close-up and the following poem is a fantastic example of that. It zooms in on life, but it's not the kind of depiction of Britain that we normally get from politicians who tend to focus on the metropolitan and often get called up on being out of touch with ordinary people and ordinary life. It presents a landscape for me which feels far more recognisable as Britain. It isn't glamorised, but it's no less intimate and personal. 22 words for snow. The lawn was freezing over, but the air stayed empty and I wondered how the Inuit would name this waiting. Our radio playing to itself in the bathroom, the sound from the street of ice cream vans out of season, in this town where we don't have 22 words for anything, where I learned the name for artificial hills, the bridge where a man was felled by bricks in the strike. From the window, I watch the sky as it starts to fill. In the kitchen, Dad sifts flour, still panning for something. We often get presented with versions of Britain that are all about the metropolitan and, or conversely, they're about idealising the pastoral and, and talking about places that you might almost escape to. But I'm sort of interested in halfway places. I think perhaps that's because the area of North Derbyshire that I grew up in is a weird kind of crossroads because 
it's almost quite rural in some ways it's surrounded by fields but then again those fields are usually the fields that bear the scars of open casting and of mining and of landfill sites and it's also I grew up on a main road a sort of suburban bit of Chesterfield which in its turn is is often seen as a bit of a suburb of Sheffield so I'm really interested in those places that actually make up a large part of the country whether in the north or the south or anywhere else it's the the places where quite rural areas meet quite urban areas I think they're what Paul Farley and Michael Simmons Roberts call edgelands in their book of the same name, these sort of fringe places. And I think it is really important to write about those intersections between the urban and the rural and, and those things, because often they're, they're where you can most obviously see the effects that we've had on our environment, for instance, like the effects of industry and the, the effects of damage that we've, we've done to the environment. So I'm, I'm quite interested in giving a vision of that landscape Talking about politics, whether it's the effect of government economic policy on a community or about our relationship to the environment and the land, is something poets have been doing for generations. And when we met, I asked Helen which poets for her are particularly significant when it comes to addressing the politics of their own time. The poet that comes to mind is Tony Harrison. We're, we're talking here in Leeds, the University of Leeds, just up the road, in fact, from the Tony Harrison archive in the Brotherton Library where we've got all of his manuscripts. So his, he feels particularly present today. And one of the reasons that I wanted to work in Leeds was because my poem Scab and quite a bit of my work have been quite heavily influenced by Tony Harrison's V. as a long poem that manages to contain this sense of anger but a very eloquent kind of anger I think and his work's very very good for that I think it can be so difficult when you feel passionately about something to find a net for it even through poetry I think Tony Harrison is just excellent at always managing to do that and finding a a net for his anger in those ways but probably for me, the ultimate political poet or the, the poet who I always come back to and get more from each time because his, work, his political work is so uncompromising but so varied is Ken Smith. And again, we're, we're having this conversation here in Leeds where Ken Smith worked for quite a long time and where his archive is kept in the library. And I think Ken Smith was always really interested in this idea that we spoke about earlier about offering different perspectives and giving voices to people that might not otherwise be represented in poetry, but also never shying away from writing about things that are quite horrible and quite difficult to deal with. And when I think about the relationship between poetry and politics, I often come back to something that Ken Smith wrote in 1972 about his work and himself, and he said this... If I have anything portentous to say about poetry, it is that for me, the world is made real by it and value found through it. Not something to be added to a drab world, but integral to it. The evocation of its brilliant suffering and the vision of a world made over from this one. Without some way to cherish life through our own experience, we can't assign value anywhere. I think poetry by its nature is subversive of established order, which only deadens... Before it, a poet can only choose between misanthropy and opposition, so he speaks from somewhere between silence and rage. And I love this idea of the poet as someone who's trying to speak from between silence and rage. I think that um, political discourse has been so degraded 
by soundbite culture and by the uh, intrusion of spin doctors and masters of, of the clever, quick slogan that it's become very difficult for people to really get inspired or, or passionate except about very very partisan politics the only place you see real enthusiasm is, is in party uh, meetings and, and congresses and conferences that was edith hall professor of classics at king's college london highlighting an issue which seems to be endemic when it comes to politics at the moment the very issue of language itself If we have a generation of poets who are able to talk about the politics of our time in interesting and imaginative and passionate ways, then our politicians seem to be lagging far behind. In an age where it's hard to find substance in all the spin, it's no wonder that so many people are just turned off by politics. In order to get some faith back in language and to be re-inspired, I decided to ask Edith for examples of language where there really has been conviction, a debate, a vision... We spoke about the great rhetoric of the ancient Athenian democracy, a place where big ideas like democracy were championed and celebrated. And one example she gave me to help combat my cynicism was from Euripides. One is from a tragedy from the 420s BC, which is by Euripides, where we have a mythical king, but of democratic Athens, talking about what it is to live in a democracy and why it's better than any other kind of constitution. The situation here is that King Theseus, who's the mythical founder of the Athenian democracy, he's a bit like sort of King Arthur, I mean, he's a very important mythical figure in the history of the country, is protecting the rights of people to bury their war dead against some very aggressive people from another city-state, which is a tyranny. And they've sent in a herald to say, give us the bodies, and he's refusing. And there's a political discussion. And he says to this herald in front of an enormous audience of people from different states, he defends the right of the burial of the dead and of the democratic constitution. Of all the evils that infest a state, a tyrant is the greatest. There the laws hold not one common tenor. His sole will commands the laws and lords it over them. This power you have not. Where the laws are written, the weak The rich have all one equal course of justice, and the lower ranks, when wronged, know their address against injurious greatness. And penury, with justice on its side, triumphs over riches. This is to be free. Is there a mind there that teems with noble thoughts and useful to the state? He speaks that thought, and he's illustrious, else he holds his peace. Is not this equal right when a free people are sovereigns of their own land, the state stands firm and glories in its rising youth that pay a prompt obedience? To a tyrant, this is hateful, all the virtuous and the wise, his gloomy jealousy devotes to death. That's the sort of rhetoric that Athenian citizen audiences that also went to hear political comedy heard their great mythical ancestors deliver on the stage. And you have to remember, if you think it sounds maybe a little bit pompous, that the democracy had actually only come in 80 years before and the Athenians had lived under terrible tyrannies and dictatorships and kingships before that. So they're revelling in this and they're making their mythical kings make quite explicit the rights of ordinary people to equality under the law and to freedom of speech. I mean, it's interesting, although you know, you say it might be read as pompous, but it's certainly passionate, it's clear. Yeah. You know, when we compare it to the sort of language that we get now, often there isn't an argument, it is just a, a soundbite or a statement. I mean, a lot of people are cynical because there doesn't seem to be any passion, really. Absolutely. Or, or, so, so, I mean, it's, do you think politicians now can learn from some of this stuff? I think we've got um, a problem with 
irony being fashionable and being cool being fashionable and with cynical pastiches of things and I get very worried about that I get very worried about that at the movies where we have an awful lot of uh, sort of postmodern clever riffs on old very serious and passionate films it's very difficult to make a serious movie about you know building a utopia we don't do utopian thinking and that's actually what the democratic athenians were still so good at because they only just started to build it when it comes to other examples of language doing politics then edith gave me another personal favorite by the suffragist charlotte perkins gilman it's another fantastic example of language that's pithy and punchy without resorting to soundbites and cliche it gets into an argument and it's witty and intelligent Charlotte Perkins Gilman was the great uh, rhymester of the American female suffrage campaign and she wrote many of their songs, she wrote the lyrics that they sang as they marched but this is one of my favourites because it's hugely political and I was in a similar situation to this once when I was involved in left-wing politics in the 1980s and required to make the tea while the real revolutionaries... um, the men got on with it exactly so i i really here's something of my own experience so this is very funny it's charlotte perkins gilman the socialist and the suffragist said the socialist to the suffragist my cause is greater than yours you only work for a special class we work for the gain of the general mass which every good ensures said the suffragist to the socialist you underrate my cause while women remain a subject class You can never move the general mass with your economic laws. Said the socialist to the suffragist, you misinterpret facts. There's no room for doubt or schism and economic determinism. It governs all our acts. Said the suffragist to the socialist, you men will always find that this old world will never move more swiftly in its ancient groove while women stay behind. A lifted world lifts women up, the socialist explained. But you cannot lift the world at all while half of it is kept so small, the suffragists maintained. The world awoke and tartly spoke. Your work is all the same. Work together or work apart. Work each of you with all your heart. Just get into the game. Election time is one of the most dynamic and vigorous when it comes to discussing where we're heading as a nation and giving rise to debates about the kinds of society we want to see. But creating social change isn't just down to politicians, and when it comes to the arts and culture, it's worth asking what role poetry has to play. Should our poetry be commenting from the sidelines about the society we're in, or should it be actively involved in creating change? Is culture more influential in creating social change than governments merely changing policies? It's an area that I discussed with all our guests, including Holly McNish. I was um, I was listening to Caitlin Moran, you know, the feminist writer at yeah. the, just the recent Women of the World Festival, and I know you've performed there before yeah. as well, and she was saying that she thinks culture is a more sort of powerful force or agent for sort of social change than just changing a policy. And I just wonder what you think about that, because with the amount of engagement and stuff that you do, yeah. does that make sense to you? That yeah, totally. Of- There's a guy, Antonis Mokas from Colombia, he was the mayor of Bogota, and then I think he was leader of the Green Party, I went to a talk by him just after I left uni and he was saying exactly that, like, laws are great because you can prosecute people for not following them and they sort of set a standard, but they don't change attitudes straight away or not even after 100 years maybe and it's culture and sort of people's fear of being socially excluded or fear of being looked down upon is stronger than their fear of being arrested or told off there are so many different forces like that so yeah I think culture is massive 
in the way people treat people and think about things. Something that struck me when I spoke to Holly is that as a full-time poet, she's incredibly involved with a range of social action organisations and projects, from working in schools to UN conferences, or doing work for the Economist Education Foundation or the National Childbirth Trust. And this idea of the poet having a hands-on role in society is also something endorsed by Edith Hall. Personally, I've always been rather attached to what Tony Harrison calls public poetry, which is poetry that does tackle issues of importance to us all as fellow citizens. And I think there should be more commissioned. I think poets should be sent into war zones, as he was into the middle of the war breaking up the former Yugoslavia and composed some very important poems for The Guardian. I like to see poetry that does do that. And that's what the ancient Athenians did most of the time. They had a democracy. And so most of their great poetry was absolutely directly addressing public issues of contemporary moment. For Helen Mort, poetry can have a quieter but no less important influence in the world. People always talk about order and the idea that poetry makes nothing happen. And of course, I think that was a misquote, really. But I really believe in something that the scientist and general Renaissance man, Ian McGilchrist, talks about in his book about the brain, the master and his emissary. And in his book, McGilchrist says that the world is shaped by the type of attention we choose to pay to it and that how we see everything and how we act is fundamentally altered by the kind of attention we pay to things. I think poetry has the power to shift the kind of attention we pay to something, whether it's a small thing or a larger thing. And so in doing that, it has a knock-on effect on how we start to see the world and therefore how we see our own actions and and how we, we see other people, really. So actually... In that sense, if poetry can shift our attention, then poetry makes something very big happen. But it's something subtle and it's something that's difficult to conceptualise and talk about. And you can't talk about it in terms of numbers and figures and I guess all the kind of things that politicians like to quantify change in. And we're back to the idea of numbers and the limitations of statistics that we spoke about at the very start of this programme. And I'm taken back too to that very first Robert Frost poem stopping by woods on a snowy evening. There could be numerous reasons for why it's the nation's most requested, but whatever our conclusions might be, I think those final few lines from Frost, but I have promises to keep, and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep, are both apt for our times and encapsulate what poetry is so good at. They're a reminder to stop, reflect, take notice, but then to move forward into action. Because for as long as our politicians have work to do, it looks like our poetry does, too. Thank you for listening to this Poet in the City podcast. For more information, go to www.poetinthecity.co.uk. see something